0: A slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles, Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear and that's where W E A R and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at Vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old flame mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at Old Flame Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. Help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylan Page Life and Style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at Browse our online store at ThumbprintDetroit.com and find us on Instagram at ThumbprintDetroit. St. Evens is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evens is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization, each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ plus support. For the month of March, St. Even's is supporting the Chicago Period Project, an organization that empowers homeless and in need people to experience their periods with dignity. This feminist grassroots organization distributes pads, tampons, underwear, and other critical menstruation supplies to local shelters, schools, and crisis support networks. Your vintage purchase from Saint Evans supports a small women of color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New vintage is released every Thursday at twelve p.m. Eastern Time at wearstevens.com, with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. dot evans. That's at wear Saint Evans. Shop vintage do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcast.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has been really enjoying seeing all of your thrifted mugs on Instagram this week. Seriously, who would have known that looking at a bunch of vintage mugs would be so fun? I'm your host, Amanda. Well, it's episode 59. Today, we have some really great phone calls to share from Sophia, Meredith, and Aaron, and we'll be listening to part two of my conversation with Tia and Rebecca of Old Flame Mending. We'll be getting into some pretty nitty-gritty mending and hemming talks, so finally, some educational content around here. But before we get into all of that, it's time to shout out all of the latest supporters on Patreon. As always, I wish I had an air horn because, wow, that would really add some excitement here. (laughs) First is my friend Alana Jevert Glover of Portland, Oregon. She's actually the person who inspired me to wear my geriatric Lolita outfit for this last Friday's Instagram Q&A. She wrote a really great letter slash question the previous week about sort of like, is there an age limit on having an aesthetic? Which, guess what? There is not. More aesthetic from all people, please, right? Um, Alana and I have also been friends since our, since our days in the early aughts folding ironic graphic tees at Urban Outfitters. I mean, man, we folded a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> Thank you for your support, Alana. Next is Emma Randall of Pennsylvania. Emma is an amazing portrait artist. I got so excited when I checked out her art Insta because... Portraiture is actually my favorite sort of like genre of drawing and painting, and Emma is very talented. Thank you so much for your support, Emma. Jenna Burke lives in Buffalo, New York, and she's a skier. And Jenna, I think I think you might be my first skiing patron. So thank you so much for your support and be careful on the slopes. Next is Tammy Nepper of British Columbia, Canada. And Tammy was my boss back in the day when I was a visual merchandiser, and she's also the best boss I've ever had. Was really sad when she left to go pursue better things. Um, She's also just an all-around lovely person. I feel so honored to have you as a patron, Tammy. Perry Elena Segura lives in Brooklyn, and you are not going to believe this, but she dressed as Guy Fieri for Halloween last year, and it was just so on point even down to the blonde tipped hair kudos perry thank you for supporting clothes horse and thank you for being the best guy fiery costume i've seen liz novak is my first patron from rhode island i seriously need to get one of those maps and start putting pins on it (laughs) It's on my list, I swear. Uh, Liz sent me a lovely message on Instagram, which was just what I needed to read this week. So thank you so much, Liz, for supporting Close Horse and me and for sending me such a lovely message. If you are interested in supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you, as always, to Everyone who supports Clothes Horse and me, whether it's via cash money or leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or even just recommending the show to friends, all of these things are so important. And of course, the best way you can show your support is just by continuing to listen. All of your support allows me to hopefully someday, maybe this year, make Clothes Horse my real actual paying job. You make my dream feel so much closer. So thank you so much. Before we move on, I also just want to shout out that in the month of March, St. Evens, which is one of our Pegasus sponsors, is donating 20% of sales to the Chicago Period Project, which distributes pads, tampons, and, you know, all the other period supplies to shelters, schools, and crisis support networks. And this is a really important cause to me because I was homeless for a while in high school, and, you know, my mom had thrown me out of the house, and I was couch surfing at different friends' houses, so it could have been worse, but while I had a part-time job at the mall, I was making $4.35 an hour, which didn't really give me very much money after, you know, things like food, (laughs) so... I was really unable to afford tampons, um, and I didn't want to wear out my welcome by bumming them from all my friends. So I was basically wadding up school paper towels, those terrible brown ones, in my underwear and hoping for the best. And you know what? No one should have to do that. So please check out St. Even's and the Chicago Period Project. I'm just so excited that Alex is supporting them, and I'm also excited that organizations like this exist, so check it out. All right, well, let's plug in the Hello Kitty phone and take some calls. First up is a call from Sophia to remind us that Victoria's Secret and, well, lots of other retailers seem to have no idea what the word irony means.
1: Hey, Amanda, it's Sophia again. I know you've already done your episode on Victoria's Secret. I actually haven't heard it yet. Um, I don't know if it moved, like, down to all the Patreon people. But anyways, uh, an influencer I follow posted a box that she received from Victoria's Secret that was like, happy International Women's Day. And the irony of them sending a the box, like, basically implying that they're, like, so happy to support strong women everywhere is just not lost on me, considering they still haven't paid their garment workers. Like, they still are marked no on the pay-up movement. And they are, have, like, a history of terrible toxic company culture, particularly with their treatment of their models and female employees. Um, So the irony wasn't lost on me, and I thought that you also would appreciate that BS, basically. But anyways, have a good day. Again, this is Sophia. Thanks. Oh, Sophia. As
0: a person who once worked for a, quote, feminist clothing company that 100% sold clothing made by exploited women, nothing makes me angrier than the way – Retailers love to create a quasi, like, you go, girl, you women are badass marketing message and all the graphic tee collections that come with that for International Women's Day. All while refusing to care for the massive female workforce that makes those products. To be honest, I took a trip through the International Women's Day website and I didn't find Any mention of female garment workers, I may have missed it, but I was looking for a while. And that's pretty wild when you consider that globally, 60 to 75 million women work in the garment industry. It's not just a handful, right? This is a massive group of people who deserve to be advocated for as part of any feminist holiday. Although, I don't know, the term feminist holiday seems pretty laughable in itself, right? 80% of garment workers globally are women. And for many of them, working and generating an income, no matter how small, which in this case is very small, earns them a level of power and freedom that they would not have otherwise. It gives them the freedom to sort of own their lives a little bit more. But once again, these women are not being paid a living wage. Female garment workers have historically... Been exploited as the cheapest labor available to global corporations. And that continues on even now, that proud legacy of exploiting female workers. Paying these women poverty wages keeps our costs low and profits super high for retail corporations. Yet I cannot emphasize enough that this low wage garment work. Affords these workers a lot of, like, I guess I would call it social capital. They get to have a little bit more of a hand in the decision making process in their households. Doesn't mean that they are totally free and liberated by any sense of the term, but having income gives them some sense of freedom. The pay up crisis, in which massive global retailers canceled billions of dollars worth of completed and in process orders if you're a regular listener, you know all about pay up, right? This robbed those female workers of that sense of independence. It caused a marked increase in both domestic violence and sex trafficking of vulnerable unemployed workers. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, this largely female workforce was not treated well by employers. According to CARE International, Nearly one in three women working in garment factories reported experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace at some point. This abuse of women is pretty easy to perpetuate and perpetrate, both of the P.E. words there, because more than one-third of countries worldwide do not have any laws prohibiting sexual harassment at work. They also don't have any laws that offer protection to these victims. Furthermore, these female garment workers are less likely to report sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. Why? Because one, the laws aren't on their side. Two, it could jeopardize that little tiny bit of social capital that they gain from having employment. And it could also affect any future marriage prospects, which in a society where these women have very, very little capital to begin with, marriage is a really important component of their like perceived value both for themselves and to the society in which they live. Women are expected to be compliant in fact, that idea of compliant women who will kind of just work hard quietly and let you do whatever you want is why these factories prefer female workers, even if that perceived compliance comes more from fear of unemployment and less from some actual biological reality that women are somehow more compliant and meek, right? Right. In many developing countries, an uneducated, young, and impoverished woman has two options for employment, domestic service, you know, being like a maid, a cook, perhaps providing childcare, or garment factory work. And believe it or not, even though these garment factory jobs are brutal, the hours are long and the pay is low, it is still a more desirable option in terms of both income and status. Nonetheless, Clothing manufacturing, in general, the act of sewing and making garments, is often considered unskilled and gendered work worldwide. So because of that, this work isn't considered valuable enough to warrant a fair living wage. And the working conditions are bad, like really, really bad, Women are working long, long hours doing monotonous tasks. We're talking 12 to 14 hours a day. That contributes to all kinds of chronic health issues like headaches, ear aches, eye trouble, all kinds of aches and pains, respiratory issues, just plain exhaustion, dehydration. It's not like these women are allowed to go up and get a glass of water and then use the bathroom anytime they want, which leads to UTIs. And of course, in general, they're just under a lot of stress. Furthermore, the toilet facilities are woefully inadequate in most of these factories. Imagine having your period and there not even being a working bathroom on site at the place where you're about to work 12 to 14 hours. There is constant pressure from employers to increase productivity to meet these tighter and tighter shipping deadlines. This is worse than ever right now during the pandemic as And we've talked about this in the past as retailers want to place their orders as close into the actual delivery date as possible to sort of mitigate the risk in case there's another shutdown. So they're placing these orders last minute. They're expecting a really fast turnaround. And it's putting these workers in a dangerous position, both health wise when we talk about COVID and also just like the instances of like assault and abuse on the job as the entire factory feels the pressure of these tightening deadlines. Furthermore, these women also face a lot of unclear policies around salary rates and workers' rights. Uh, There's very little transparency from employers about pay. And so this can confuse the workers about how much they're actually owed for their work. It's intentional. This is not accidental lack of clarity when it comes to wages because it makes it easier for the employer to practice wage theft. And in fact, when you're doing a factory audit, which I've talked about in the past that the factory audit process is is not the best path right now because there's so much corruption there, but one part of these factory audits is does the factory keep track of the workers hours, which probably sounds like a really obvious one, but in the factories where the most wage theft occurs, no one is tracking that. Like there's not a time clock. So the worker can't be like, I've worked these hours. Here's the proof. It just doesn't exist. And therefore, it's a lot easier to get away with not paying someone the full wages that they're owed. Furthermore, these women work in hazardous and unclean working facilities. It goes without saying that they have no benefits, and that includes sick leave and maternity leave. And Obviously, no opportunities for upward mobility. No one's going to sit down and give you your annual performance review and talk about the next steps in your career. That's just not happening. So on the surface level, of course, it's very ironic that Victoria's Secret, a company known for incredible misogyny in its corporate headquarters and its exploitive treatment of its models, all of this was uncovered in last year's New York Times expose, aptly titled Angels in Hell, The Culture of Misogyny Inside Victoria's Secret. And I'll share a link to that in the show notes because it is a horrifying read. And this doesn't even talk about all of the conditions under which its garment workers are sewing those panties and push-up bras. So this is just like the icing on the cake, really. You can also hear about all of this in the Patreon-exclusive episode of Close Horse that is available to all patrons at all tiers. So you can check it out there, too. Um... I will say that Victoria's Secret did eventually pay up for orders canceled during the early days of the pandemic, but they refused to sign the pay up fashion pledge to pay living wages and provide safe and good work conditions. So all of the things that I just talked about are most likely happening to their predominantly female garment workers, yet they're sending out weird gift boxes that are all, like, pro-woman to their influencers. I mean, I, I hate it so much. This this makes me so angry. Like, fashion is a feminist issue, and so when I see retailers co-opting feminism as a marketing story, I'm furious. I'm just so furious, I mean, the fact that they don't want to pay living wages and provide safe and good work conditions, it's not very empowering or feminist, right? No matter how many gift boxes you send out to influencers that say otherwise. Furthermore, here's a fun little fact. Half of Sri Lanka's COVID cases were linked to a single factory that manufactures for Gap, Calvin Klein, and Victoria's Secret, According to Vice News reporters who investigated this massive outbreak in Sri Lanka, the workers quote, work in overcrowded rooms with poor ventilation on tightly packed production lines where social distancing is next to impossible, often without protective gear for a monthly base salary of roughly, are you ready for this, $110. Wow. Wow. That doesn't seem very empowering for women, does it? The same reporters also noted, quote, the relentlessly increasing demand for affordable fashion clothes under lockdown in the West is putting supply chain workers at risk and exposing whole countries to potential new outbreaks. I mean, I feel like this is just the recurring story that we talked about it in the last episode with Boohoo, just like not. Not thinking of the humanity working in their factories making these clothes, just thinking about like we need more stuff to sell, to make money, to make profit, to keep going, to pay bonuses, all that stuff. And speaking of pay up, there are still tons of large brands that have refused to pay up. I would love to see what kind of feminist pro-woman product all of these retailers that refuse to pay for canceled orders are trying to sell us this month. Because remember, by not paying up, garment workers didn't get paid, garment workers starved, women fell prey to sex trafficking and domestic abuse. Hmm, Not very feminist, is it? If you want to see the latest list, you can find it in the link tree on the Close Horse Podcast Instagram bio. I keep it there all the time. I would love, I mean, I don't have time for this, but if any of you feel like trolling the sites of the companies who haven't paid up to see what kind of pro-woman girl power product they're selling, please let me know what you come across. I just want to know just so I can be angry, more angry, I guess. Okay, well, I guess we should probably move on because I could talk about this all day. So... Next, we have a call from our friend Meredith, who's calling to tell us about another kind of essential worker that is being affected by COVID.
1: Hey, Amanda, it's Meredith uh, reporting live from glamorous Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. So if you hear a lot of noise in the background, that's just our neighbors, uh, which is a scrapyard, you know, working in this business is just top of the line glamour 100% of the time. Um, but I figured I'd give you a call. I saw that you were looking for phone calls, and I um, have been incurring something that has been happening over and over again with our shipments. Um, some of the clients we work with, we do do some production overseas in China with, and we are having big issues at the port. And I know this has been an ongoing thing uh, during COVID. Unfortunately, the dock workers have had a lot of outbreaks of COVID. They are severely downsized in staff, and so just everything is backed up. It's taking forever for ships to clear, um, for the goods to get off the boat and then to clear customs. Like It's taking very, very long time. Um, currently, I had a shipment that was packed and ready to go right before Chinese New Year, was supposed to be on the last boat leaving China for Los Angeles. And I followed up on the shipment the other day and I was let, I was informed that the ship was still in China, that it never actually left because the backup at the port was so bad that they didn't want the ship just hanging out in the port of L.A. for weeks and weeks waiting to get through. So they held the boat back in China. So this is a big issue that's happening, and I know here for L.A. with the vaccine schedule, um, doc workers are not being prioritized, but it's such a huge part of our economy. You would hope that they would be able to get those people vaccinated and back to work because we really need it. So just something interesting that's happening in manufacturing these days. Uh, maybe that's a potential closed source blog. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I hope you're doing well, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. So I cannot underscore
0: this enough. Dock workers are so important and so essential to basically the entire retail industry here in the U.S. By now, you know that a substantial portion of the stuff we buy comes from overseas. And while a lot of our clothing ships via airplane thanks to fashion getting faster and faster – Tons and tons and tons of stuff comes through our ports where it's unloaded and moved through customs, then loaded on trucks and shipped across the country. To say this is essential work is an understatement because without those dock workers, we don't get to buy anything. As of late January, more than 700 dock workers at the twin ports of LA and Long Beach tested positive for COVID, with hundreds more quarantining. In fact, in late January, there were more than 1,100 workers being unable to work, and this was just under 10% of the whole workforce, which is a pretty decent chunk of people being unable to work. Roughly $325 billion worth of merchandise comes through these two ports every year, especially merchandise coming across the Pacific Ocean from Asia. You know that's a lot of the stuff we buy. And once again, it's all kinds of things from clothing to furniture to electronics to medications to pet food. I mean, you name it, it's coming through there. You might be saying like, well, whatever, if stuff is late hitting stores, then we can all just buy less stuff. But decreased sales from decreased inventory will lead to more layoffs and more unemployment. And I don't need to tell you, there are so many people out of work right now who are very, very frightened. Like, let's not make the problem worse, right? So these dock workers are so essential California is working to send more vaccines their way, but so far only 800 out of 15,000 workers have been vaccinated. Just one more essential worker that you may have not thought about before or even known about. And by the way, these workers already, even in a non-pandemic world, they work under really tough conditions because the air quality in these ports is horrible. I bet you're asking why. Why? Well, because there are all of these idling delivery trucks, like literally like tractor trailers just idling all day long waiting for their loads. And it really affects the quality of the air. So these dock workers are prone to respiratory issues like asthma and occupational bronchitis. Okay, next we have a call from Erin who's going to share her own experiences sort of paring down her own possessions and her consumption. It's really a perfect message for Consumption Month.
2: Hey, Amanda, it's Erin the Librarian here again. Um, with something else I wanted to run by you and the other listeners, um, but I first wanted to mention that, like, I call myself Erin the Librarian because it has a nice ring to it. But I'm not one of those people whose profession like takes up a huge part of my identity. I mean, I really like being a librarian, but I also enjoy uh, many other things too. And I think a lot of those things make up more of like the core part of my identity. Uh, for example, having an interest in and appreciation for art and design, um, which is why I think it t- t- takes such pride in my personal style. Anyways, I mentioned in my last voicemail that getting a better handle on my personal style has helped me like not buy so much stuff. Um, the other thing that has helped me buy less stuff is actually like having less stuff in my closet and bureau. Um, it actually may sound counterproductive, but having less stuff and like being able to better see everything that I own has helped me shop less. Um, it's also reduced my anxiety around getting um, dressed and I'm not as likely to buy something that's very similar to something I already owned and just forgot about. Um, I realize not everyone operates this way, but in general, having less stuff for me like reduces my anxiety. Um, my question for you and the other listeners is: How do you know you're in a good place when it comes to your wardrobe? Uh, for someone like me, can purging your wardrobe be good as long as it's like a means to an end? Um, that is, you're not simply making room to buy more stuff. And here's some background: um, My journey began around like three or four years ago. Um, I started making more money. I went down a size because I started like working out. Um, and I started buying better quality clothes, um, still fast fashion, um, technically, but at least it was kind of like a step up from, you know, your H&M Trevor 21. Um, and because I was seeking out better quality stuff, um, that happened to cost more, um, I sought out that stuff when I got dressed and it meant I ended up donating, um, all the other stuff that was cheap and uncomfortable. Um, that's not to say I haven't fallen victim to compulsive shopping these past few years, but at least the stuff I bought could, more easily be sold or consigned. And I've done that a lot more than I'd like to admit, just because I don't have the space in my condo. And I actually recently made the decision to get rid of all of my like out-of-season storage and only keep um, what fits in my closet and bureau. And so far that's working out well, um, even though I did have to you know, say goodbye to some things that um, were part of my wardrobe. Um, and that's not to say I haven't been tempted by minimalism or like seeing people with super small wardrobes. But I've decided that having um, like a non-minimalist closet, um, maybe still smaller than your average American closet, but you know, not considered minimal, um, is better than feeling like I got rid of too much. Um, I know you've discussed minimalism in the past, um, and I also wonder if there's a better approach out there to deciding like what amount of stuff is ideal for each person. So basically, not feeling overwhelmed with all the things you own, but um, and cluttered, but also not feeling like you don't have enough. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, and yeah, looking forward to the next episode. Okay, I
0: will, I will say that Erin is totally right. A clean, organized closet. I, I feel like such a mom telling you this, but this is, this is the reality. An organized closet where you can actually see everything you own is essential for actually wearing and using your wardrobe. Trust me. I mean, my closet situation in our last house was such a nightmare that when we moved out, I discovered all of these clothes that I thought I had lost or maybe I'd even forgotten about them. It was like Christmas because I just couldn't see everything was so stuffed in there. I could barely move a hanger around. There was stuff that had fallen. There was stuff that had just slid off the hanger but was stuck between other clothes. So depending on your closet situation, you really need to be resourceful about how you're organizing your clothing. Because I do think having an easy view of what you own will prevent you from buying stuff you don't need. I mean, there are other things that you need to keep in mind too to prevent yourself from buying stuff you don't need. But actually knowing what you own it sounds pretty basic, but it's a major part of that. I'm a big fan of packing up my winter clothes into plastic tubs you know, during the spring and the summer and then doing the inverse for winter. I've been doing it since I was a little kid, actually. We used to – it was like a big day twice a year where we would switch out our clothes into the attic. I recognize that this only works if you have the space to store it. So this isn't for everyone. But you could also maybe consider getting those flat storage bins that go under your bed because I have to say, like, pairing out the things that I actively can't wear right now but obviously I don't want to get rid of has – Really helped me stay on top of what I own, you know? And when you think about it, when it comes to choosing what you keep or what you buy, how you organize your stuff, all of these things, everyone has to choose their own path on that one. I know that there are whole companies that, you know, have made a fortune helping you organize your closet, and I can appreciate that. But when someone organizes your stuff for you, It might not be the way your brain would normally organize things, and that could be ultimately kind of unhelpful to knowing what you actually own, right? I just don't think for any of this stuff, for anything that relates to the stuff we own, whether it's clothes or books or craft supplies or all the other weird stuff that some of us are into... I don't think there's one general prescription for everyone for how they should deal with it and how they should feel about it. For example, Marie Kondo's idea that everything should spark joy. Well, that seems to put a lot of pressure on every one of our belongings because let's be real, not everything sparks joy and nor should it because that doesn't make it less important and useful, you know, like tights and gym shoes and sports bras a lot of workout clothing, to be honest, pajamas, these things, I don't own them because they bring me delight, I own them because they do their job, and I, it's a job that needs to be done, right? In fact, I would say, like, raising the expectation that every item in your life should spark joy may lead people to cycle through things faster than they would otherwise, which leads to, dun overconsumption, Right? I think you should always hold on to the things that you think are valuable to you and don't ask anyone else because what's, what's that old adage? Like what's one man's trash is another man's treasure. I, I'm not getting that right either, but you know what I mean. We all have different views of what's important and it's personal to us. Our possessions, our consumption habits, these are all reflections of our own inner lives. And as we've talked about in the past, our relationships with stuff – awfully personal. They're based in our own experiences, our families, our memories, etc. So there's no easy advice that works for everyone. It's about figuring out what works best for you. If you have your own system of organization of determining what stays, what goes, what's a real purchase versus what's a window shop only, tell me because I want to hear from you. I mean, I think while each of these processes and decisions are personal, it can be inspiring to hear how other people sort of organize their lives, how they make these decisions, what matters to them. And I really want to hear your own personal experiences with shopping, with collecting, with the stuff in your life. As I mentioned, I grew up in an environment where having stuff was like, it was like a shameful thing. <laughs> I barely have any photos of myself as a child, like literally nothing after age five through adulthood, because my mom thought it was stupid to be sentimental by holding on to things like that. And I would argue otherwise, like, man, I really wish I had some pictures of myself as a kid, you know, and I mean, that's a whole other thing. But (laughs) I think it shows how possessions mean different things to different people, right? Like maybe someone else doesn't care about you photos of you as a child but it's important to you because it was your childhood growing up in that kind of environment where owning anything basically was embarrassing was something that implied a character flaw that might be just the kind of character flaw that would ruin your life it made me feel terrible about you know valuing photos of my loved ones It made me feel ashamed for holding on to special books and souvenirs and letters. I still sort of cope with that where I'm like angry at myself or feel guilty because I have like a box full of like train tickets from Japan. And then I'm like, wait a minute. No, you saved those for a reason. They're important to you. I have to have that dialogue all the time. But once again, that looks like a shoebox of junk to another person, right? I'm not saying that I would like save my closet from a burning house. I mean, obviously, I would look for the cats, Brenda, George, and Ray, before I would be like running clothes out of my closet. Like my priorities are in the right place, I promise. But that doesn't mean that I don't have some clothes that are full of memories that I feel magical and powerful in when I wear. And there's no shame in that. Stuff is more than, well stuff. It's tangled up in our lives, and our memories, and our sense of self. And while we need to cut back on our consumption, it doesn't mean that we should feel bad about valuing the things already in our lives, no matter what they are. Tell me about your stuff or your first memories of consumerism or just about anything else. You can call the Close Horse hotline at 717-925-7417 or or you can send me an email at amanda at world. Okay, well, this episode is shaping up to be yet another long one. So let's just jump right into part two of my conversation with Rebecca and Tia of Old Flame Mending.
3: For our specific business, it's really... Important for us to collaborate and ask customers questions about what they're expecting, Mm. managing their expectations, and like also just being super communicative about pricing. Pricing in general has just been such an obstacle for us, to be completely honest, um, since it is all custom work and every garment is going to be different and like take a different amount of time and have different needs. So right now we're just getting to a place where we're feeling more confident about pricing things in a way that's paying our, so so that we can like pay ourselves fairly. Right. Um, Right. So like, that's like always a learning process for us. It's just Mm -hmm. pricing. That's like the recurring conversation.
0: And I receive so many messages on Instagram from people who like want me to help them figure it out or give them some advice. And Of course, I love doing that because I feel like if everybody could learn how to value their work appropriately, it would change, like, everybody's expectation of how much things should cost, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I'm sure it's challenging for you sometimes because, you know, most people don't know how to sew. They don't know how to mend. And they can't look at something and see the amount of work involved. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Or maybe they just see, like, like these tailoring businesses that charge really low and like have Uh a fast turnaround. So they think like we can do that too, or like, that's what it should be. And it it is kind of hard because I do feel like we're fighting that market and we're also fighting like, but I can't, you know, (laughs) hem these pants for $10 and get them back to you like tomorrow. Like Mm -hmm. it's just not the best long-term plan for us. So it is like, it is hard to have some conversations sometimes with people who have different expectations of what this business is.
0: Mhm. Yeah, no,
3: I I have no doubt. I'm sure that's really really hard. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like we have some really amazing customers. Like yeah. the majority of our clientele is like really cool about like the pricing and like some people are even like, "Wow, that's all." Yeah. Like they I think because like our customers really just like value their clothes and like are bringing us things that they want to keep around for a while so for them you know spending a little chunk of change on a getting a sweater repaired that they love is like totally worth it to them Mm -hmm. yeah
4: yeah well I
0: mean let's be real people who are into mending are automatically cool so <laughs> by virtue of what you do, you're kind of like getting cool customers
3: anyway. It's true. We have some yeah. really cool customers.
4: Yeah. Who keep coming back.
3: Yeah. It's
4: interesting because I hadn't even
0: thought of tailoring as being this much more like McDonald's kind of business <laughs> where I know, I mean I know that's true because people want clothes to be tailored for cheap. Like when I listen to people talking about it or asking for recommendations, it always comes down to, I'm looking for something cheap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people want their pants to be hemmed for $10 mm-hmm. and they want, like, I've seen some friends take some crazy elaborate tailoring situations off to be fixed. And, you know, somehow it only costs them $20 and I, I don't understand, you know, mm-hmm. um, a, a couple of years ago, I I have this amazing blue suede coat from like the 70s, and it's got like a gray faux fur collar. It's really beautiful, and the lining was shredded. I mean, you know how vintage mm-hmm. coats always have like that's like always their fatal flaw. And so I took it to a tailor slash mending place in Philly, and I was like, I'd really like to have this repaired. And they were like, It's going to be at least a hundred dollars. Are you sure? And I'm like, Yeah, 100. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Okay, well we're going to get you an estimate, but we need you to sign this contract saying that we'll actually pay for it. Because whenever we do something like this and then we repair it, then the person never shows up to take it and doesn't want to pay for it. And I was kind of surprised by that because I was like, this coat is so beautiful. How could you even put a price tag on fitting it, repairing it? You know what I mean? And extending its life. And they did, I will say, it looks, like going back to the idea of tailoring, always trying to make things look brand new. It looks brand new. It's bizarre. That's amazing. I'm so happy. They even took the label out and sewed it into wow. a new lining. Wow. That's great.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was like $125. <laughs> but once again, this is this like stunning yeah. one-of-a-kind coat. And so yeah. I do think we need to like – I don't know. I mean, this is like a whole like cerebral like going off on a tangent thing, but I think we are so confused about the value of things and, and how that mm-hmm. relates to price. And, you know, I think it's because we've been able to get so much for so cheap for so long. And that would include tailoring. Yeah, totally. Yeah,
3: yeah whenever I was working at the tailoring shop, like someone would come in with like a yeah, like a pair of trousers and they'd be like, I need I need it taken in at the waist. I need it tapered, and I need them hemmed. And we're like, okay, that's going to be like, I don't know, it was probably around like seventy-five dollars. And they'd be like, but, but that's more than what I spent on these. And we're just like, okay, <laughs> and you know, well, you're like basically re-sewing them. Yeah. You know what I, mean? yeah. like- <laughs> and so, I But I mean, it is like there's like such a perception of like sewing. Being this really like fast, like automated thing, like you just run mm-hmm. through a sewing machine and then it's done or something. And I think because I think there is a correlation between like fast fashion being really cheap and then people expecting all sewing work to be really cheap too. Yeah.
0: Well, and just not because so few people sew anymore that they don't understand how hard it is. Yeah. It is really hard work, and it's very precise. And it's very skilled. And I would almost rather sew a garment from scratch than try to alter one. I think that's way harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about mending. I – can all damage be repaired? I mean, this is a question that I have all the time when I – like, there are certain things that are sort of chilling in a basket in my closet where I'm like, I don't know if this is a – catastrophic damage situation (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
3: it kind of just depends on like how much time and money you want to put into it honestly like or like also just how visible you want it to be um I mean like our slogan is that we'll fix anything but a broken heart and like we really do try to abide by that because (laughs) you I mean as long as you're like cool with like a patch being over something that doesn't you know perfectly match the original fabric like you can like yeah like put a patch on a lot of things yeah like just put a patch on it (laughs) oh my gosh
4: I mean we've definitely had some things that we've said yes to that I think we've had yeah maybe we should have said (laughs) no to (laughs) <laughs> and, um, yeah, we're just like learning how to really assess um some of these requests, I think a little bit more carefully. But I mean, most likely things can be repaired. It's just sad when things easily can and people think that it can't. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be an option, maybe inspire you to try. Like when in doubt, just ask ask us and we'll just give you an honest answer. Um, So yeah, go through that pile, Amanda. It's probably (laughs) fine. You can probably mend it yourself. (laughs) I will tell you,
0: I know that you are going to be starting to do zippers soon, I hope. (laughs) And I swear, I'm going to be like, Sending a palette to you because, well,
3: like, even a lot of other people, too. Know,
0: I'm sure, I'm sure there's gonna be like a waiting list. It's <laughs> like, I think I talked about this with you when we were preparing for this episode. That you know, one thing I've learned more than anything in the past few years in my career specifically is that there's just not much of a difference in quality between like stuff you might buy at like Madewell or Forever Twenty One or Zara and like some of the more like three, four hundred, five hundred dollar dress brands because Mm -hmm. I specifically and I'm just gonna shit talk this brand right now, I have two Love Shack fancy dresses up in my closet Mm -hmm. that both have broken zippers and they were both like four hundred dollars a piece. Oh my god, that's so and I Mm -hmm. I like I find replacing a zipper to be I I just can't. Every time I do it, I make the matter – I make it a worse situation than it was. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're just, like, hanging out up there waiting for the day when you guys take in zippers. Yeah.
4: <laughs> we really need to get – we've been, we really saying been saying this since, this. like, last
3: year. Yeah, but It's just – the thing about zippers is, like, every garment kind of requires a different kind of zipper.
0: hmm There's, mm-hmm.
3: like, the invisible zipper. There's the denim zipper. There's, mm-hmm. like – Um, different colors that zippers come in and so yeah we just need to figure it out because I think there are people (laughs) with (laughs) piles waiting yeah
4: maybe we can like start with I would assume like a jacket zipper like a bag zipper something a little bit like larger width would be easier to learn like versus a a pair of denim or like pants zippers sorry but um, yeah, we just really need to get that down because it's a when it's such a silly thing. Like it's a zipper. We just need to replace the zipper. I am
0: guessing that probably tons of clothes go to the landfill because of the zipper because it's really it's like to me. I and and maybe I am overstating this, but I feel like replacing a z- zipper is like an advanced sewing skill. So most people don't have that. Yeah. You definitely can't like do it by hand, right? Oh, so you need a sewing no. machine and you need one that's good with sewing a zipper. Yeah, you need you that need, skill. You need a really
3: good seam ripper also. Yeah. and
0: tie. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so you, you're not going to donate that thing with a broken zipper to the Goodwill or something in most situations. So you throw it in the trash or you like me, you have a special basket in the closet.
4: (laughs) (laughs) My eco anxiety just spiked a little bit. Like if I don't learn zippers like tomorrow, I'm just adding more to the waste of the world. (laughs) I mean, this is thing. I mean, this is like a
0: thing I have been obsessing over for years are specifically zippers and not even like my personal experience with clothes, but like when I would see issues, you know, like getting reports for my different jobs on like things that were being returned the most often mm-hmm. for quality mm-hmm. issues or getting damaged out in the stores, it was almost always zipper related. And oh, it created this anxiety for me that like, I know, like for example, a lot of clothes don't come with YKK zippers anymore because they're mm-hmm. too expensive. And we're talking yeah. a difference of a few mm-hmm. cents. Yeah. and so. So everybody is always like, what's the shittiest zipper we can put in here? Mm -hmm. And then when you look at a lot of like younger brands and designers, they might not know that they can ask for a better zipper. And there's definitely not a lot of like wear testing going on with zippers. So even if you're a buyer for like a big retailer, you don't know that there's like a zipper catastrophe happening Mm -hmm. until you see the reports or the bad reviews on the website. And so- Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's this zipper problem in the world yeah, that total is, is right, right, and it you know it leads to a lot of waste of perfectly clothes because it is not an easy fix. And then I'm like, should we just all switch to buttons
3: or something? Because this is yeah. just like not going well. I do love a like a fly button situation on a or a button fly situation on a pair of jeans, um. You know and there's like yeah, like maybe like three or four buttons where like the zipper would be and there's like this little like panel and it's like hidden and I don't know, I just think it's really cute. We we have like every once in a while someone's like really passionate about getting their um like zipper repaired and like maybe i shouldn't admit to this because and i just feel like this is like opening up like a whole like floodgate of like people with zipper problems coming to us but like um we <laughs> we will just like replace it with like buttons instead of a zipper and they're like cool with it i guess that's probably a big procedure also, but I'd still rather do that than at a zipper. That's uh, like how passionate we feel about, <laughs> about not doing zippers.
0: I mean, it's, it's the worst. Like I, this, my ego anxiety is blowing up too, because so many of those zippers are plastic also. So it's just like more plastic and they're not biodegradable and they're not recyclable. And of course when clothes or going to the landfill, it's not like someone's ripping out the zipper and sending it off to recycling either. So it's no. just like,
4: oh, ugh. Like, I thought about doing that at thrift stores. just like, what's something that you overlook all the time, but it's right there. These are, like, resources right there.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And sometimes mm-hmm. even, like, a zipper or, like, a metal hoop or something. Like, I don't know. If you need something, like, that you're not always thinking about, just finding creative ways to get it. Instead of buying it, it can be,
3: mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, like harvesting zippers yeah. from old <laughs> jeans. Yeah, worn.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good idea, actually, because too, there's so many jeans out there that, like, nobody likes the fit of anyway, you know, that yeah. you could, like, disassemble them and someone could use the fabric to make something and then you could, like, take the zipper and all the other trims. Yeah, do you
3: think Madewell makes their jeans with YKK zippers? Definitely,
0: I would. I would guess. I would guess not. I mean, I would love for someone to go to the store and find out, or who has a pair of jeans to look. But I've literally been in meetings where we're like, "Well, we can't afford a YKK zipper. We're going to take oh, this other so no-name zipper." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would challenge people to go in the closet and look at their newer clothes and see how many of them say YKK on it because. I feel like when I find that, I'm like, ooh, this is premium. (laughs) So we know that you don't do zippers. (laughs) I have seen the two of you do some really amazing stuff on social media with, like, sweaters and socks. Mm -hmm.
3: Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it darning? And do you do that by (laughs) hand or is that a machine? It's by hand. Um, Yeah, darnings, basically, it's, like, just making, like, a little weaving Um, over the whole, and yeah, it's best for knits and sweaters. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like really satisfying because, um, yeah, like you can really get creative with darning with like colors and just like, it like really like adds some texture to, um, even when the color does match really specifically to the original garment, um, there is still, like, a little bit of a texture there, which, like, I really love that look of, like, amending mending being, like, pretty under the radar, but you can see it once you're up close. That's a really fun part about darning. And there's also different types of darning.
4: Yeah. Like, right now, we do kind of focus on the – I'm just going to say, like, weave uh, – how
3: should we call this? Just, like, a basic weave. Just a
4: basic weave. Darn. Um, but there is a style out there that, again, back to TikTok and Instagram, that's become so popular. It's called, <laughs> um, it's called Swiss darning. And it's basically like an embroidery stitch that replicates the direction of the yarn on a knit or sweater. So it blends into the garment like really seamlessly. You can be really creative with it. Um, And I like wanted to make it a point to I just need to learn how to do it. And I keep saying this, um, but time slips away. But I I really (laughs) want to learn. And I hope like putting this out there on the podcast will, you know, help me stay motivated to learn it because I think it is a good option for someone who like really just wants something to blend in and not stand out because, you know, there is that need to. And again, I want to like, challenge my skills as a as a bender um but yeah darning is great especially if you're like sewing on the machine for like hours of a day and you just want to like sit on the couch and zone out or something you can like still darn and it's just nice to mix up like yeah your hands sometimes like and darning is a great break and a fun thing to do Okay. So let's talk about patching because I was telling you
0: why, I guess I was asking you those iron on patches that you can buy at the store, like at Joanne or why are they so terrible and do they ever actually work?
3: No. Um, yeah. So you're talking about like the, like, denim repair patches but you can usually find like various washes of these like yes and they have the (laughs) adhesive on the back yeah Mm -hmm. the brand is
0: usually dritz i can picture i can picture the card yes yes
3: Yes. yeah i'm just like yeah please like do not waste your money on those um it's just it's usually made of like a polyester blend or at least like a cotton with like a high poly content and that adhesive just isn't strong enough to stay on the garment for very long. I know. Or you, it will stay on. I have learned this from personal experience
0: and you'll wash it. Mm-hmm. And then in the dryer, it will separate itself from the garment it was on yep. and glue yep. itself to something
4: else. Oh <laughs> no. Yeah. I can totally see that happening. <laughs>
0: yeah. They are They are such garbage. And I would also when we take on the zipper industry, we also need to start like picketing outside the dritz office and get them to pull these patches off the line. Because I, I thought maybe it was just me, but I've talked to other people and I just, I've never heard of them successfully working out.
4: Yeah. It's, it's not ideal. It's basically like denim duct tape and that glue, that adhesive that you iron on to the fiber. It, it it weakens it like over time it's going to deteriorate and ultimately make the hole larger. And then when you, uh-huh. it, when you give it to us to fix, we have to like work longer <laughs> because that patch covered that area. And now that area is bad. So we have to like expand. Oh. So yeah, they're really not ideal. Please don't use them. So
0: you can patch things just not with these garbage patches. Like you have to use, another piece
3: of fabric. Yes. Although I do have a theory that maybe those like iron-on denim patches are actually just made to like be ironed on for placement and then you actually are supposed to like sew around them, but mm-hmm. yeah, even so, it's just I just <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. Like I'm Yeah. You do that, you might as well just like get a piece of cut off a piece of denim from, like, a pair of jeans that you're not wearing or, like, your, like, shorts that you cut off for summertime and just, like, yeah, just, like, use what you have, which it's like, another thing that we're, like, really mm-hmm. passionate about It's just, like, using what's ri- readily av- available. Um, you don't always have to, like, buy, like, new fabric to, like, patch over stuff either. It didn't even occur to me that people would do that. <laughs> so
0: don't do that like if you somehow magically do not have any extra fabric around your house which could be happening because you live a really minimalist lifestyle there is so much fabric at the thrift store yes. not even just like purely like I'm going to the section where they have the craft and fabric stuff mm-hmm. there's like a racks and racks of things you could cut up to patch your clothes yeah Yeah, there's
4: quality clothing just sitting there there's vintage like you can find everything I can't stress thrift store shopping for resource for material enough
3: Amanda I feel like you would appreciate this because I know that you like hello kitty (laughs) 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 um we were once working on this project this was recently actually and we needed like some um it was like a faux leather purse and we needed like a really specific shade of like pink vinyl um to help mend this purse and I was like feeling like a little stressed because I was like oh my god like where are we gonna find this vinyl like I don't want to like have to like go out and like buy new vinyl It's, it's plastic." And Tia was like, well, like, I'm just gonna, like, go to the thrift store and see what I can find. And she found this Hello Kitty pencil case that was (gasps) in the the most perfect shade. And (laughs) I was using that and cutting that up. And it was, like, like, it just, like, couldn't have worked out any better. And it was, like definitely cheaper than going mm-hmm. out and buying a sheet of vinyl anyway and then being stuck with all this extra vinyl yeah and it's super cute yeah <laughs> yeah
4: yeah. it's um I actually did have to like I was nervous about that project at first I did go to Joanne's just to like see what they have and they didn't even have anything like in that shade what I wanted so Yeah, I I love that I found that thing at the thrift store. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's so cool that,
0: you know, we have to reframe the way we look at materials, especially when we're talking about like making things, because there is just this surplus of materials that already exist. You know, like you can't assume that the only fabric you can use is currently sitting in a bolt somewhere because Mm -hmm. it might be just hanging on a rack with its other bad clothing buddies at the thrift store right now. Mm -hmm. Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't know. I'm, you know, I think we're starting to see more sort of like interest and acceptance around clothes made out of like sheets and quilts and afghans Mm -hmm. and tea towels. I mean, I'm basically describing Selena Sanders now, but like a year ago... Most people wouldn't have looked at those things and had the vision yeah. to see that there's, like, this beautiful potential there. And I think mm-hmm. I get excited when I see all the makers like Selena who are showing people that on the internet every day. Or, like, like Danny of Picnic wearing – making hats yeah. out of towels. I, I love yeah. Who would have thought of that? I know. Yeah, it's so
3: those cool. Those are so cool.
0: Huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. So, yeah, I mean – you don't need to necessarily take a single trip to Joanne to repair your clothes. Yeah. It's really, it's really the worst. So, okay. If you have a pair of hole I feel like you guys repair a lot of denim. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but in our household denim, like I don't wear jeans if you've been listening to the show long (laughs) enough, but uh, Dustin exclusively wears jeans and you know, he has – he's very, very tall and very, very thin. So he can only – there are only a few denim brands that really even fit him. So it's always really important that we keep his jeans going for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And I I would love to hear, like, your advice for repairing a pair of jeans that doesn't involve those terrible patches. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so it is really funny because there are a lot of people who come to us and they're like, "There are holes in my crotch. Like, can you? I don't know if they're going to be able to fix this. This is like really weird." And we're like, "Oh, this is like actually the most common yeah. mend that we do, and like we can absolutely do that." Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say the best way to repair denim, especially if it is in like a yeah, like a like a crotch or like um you know a butt or like a place where you want it to blend in a little bit better um I would recommend doing denim darning by machine um you can use a denim darning machine like what Tia has or you can just use a regular sewing machine too um just put a thin patch under the hole so you want to use something like yeah like a lightweight cotton underneath um and this is actually like a good situation in which you can like use some sort of like fusible webbing to like kind of iron it in place or you can just use pins and then you want to go back and forth with a straight stitch numerous times um and you want to follow the grain of the weave of the denim um and like right now people are probably like not really like sure what I'm talking about but like if you like Look at your jeans close up. You'll see lines going uh-huh. in the action, and just like follow those lines, um, yeah, and just go back and forth on them, um, yeah. And like you can, you can usually find blue fabric or black or gray or whatever color your jeans are that will match pretty closely and like blend in. Um, there's also some thread that's like a denim thread and it's kind of like various shades of blue um which can be kind of cool because it like does blend pretty well with like you know just how like yeah like jeans like aren't really usually like one solid color like there is some variation in there yeah I
4: we call it zigzagging that's like what we call that style that kind of men to denim repair. But um, if a hole is like really big or if you're just like missing, like a whole area um, we usually just like patch that mm-hmm. area with another piece of denim or canvas, like something with structure so that the pant will kind of like keep its form and, I, I mean, I really like how patching looks like two color denims together kind of offers like a polished look too. Um, it, you know, the, the option is always there if you want to be visible or not. Um, but we do offer a little discount on mending orders if you like bring us, you know, other fabric that you want to be mended with. I know that you aren't tailors, mm-hmm. but...
0: When we were preparing for this episode, we did talk about how there are some tailoring things that you can do at home with, like, not a super high level of skill or experience. I hope I'm not overselling that. Maybe, maybe that's not true. But I remember specifically in HOMAC, for example, learning how to hem pants and being like, oh, that's the hype, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> so yeah. Do you have do you have some advice here for some like for example hemming your pants, which does not mean taking in the waist, but in fact making them shorter? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: um yeah, and the same goes for like a dress or a skirt too, like or even a shirt. But yeah, basically if you know the inseam of your pants, um like yeah, I'm like usually like a 31 inseam. You wanna take your pants, lay them flat get a measuring tape and or a ruler if you have like a yardstick it could work um measure from the crotch along the inside seam or the inseam um and then measure that down to like whatever your inseam is so like for me it's 31 so I would make a mark at 31 then I would make a second mark um one inch down so like at 32 i'm going to make a second mark and then draw like two lines um for each mark that's like going like parallel to the original hem or like the original bottom of your pants and then you want to cut at like the bottom line that you drew. So for me, it would be, I'm a 31 inseam. So I would cut at the 32 inch mark straight across. And then um, you want to fold up the bottom that you just cut. So you want to fold it up so that the fold of the pants is at your inseam. So like for me, it would be 31. And then you can just sew a straight line around the pant leg and that's pretty much how you do a hem.
0: See, not bad. <laughs> just measure twice, measure twice. Measure twice. Cut once. Cut a yes. 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 <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: like cutting your own bangs, for example. Yes,
3: exactly. <laughs> if you don't know your inseam, you can usually like kind of, you know, make a pretty good like estimate as to like where the hem line should be. But, it can also get tricky because like your hem or like your inseam for like a pair of skinny jeans is going to be a lot different than your inseam Mm for like a pair of bell bottoms because Mm -hmm. you know those just fit differently and they fall on the leg differently if you're in doubt get like a Friend or like a good tailor to measure for you um a good tailor will measure actually from the floor up as opposed to like the inseam when they're fitting for a hem, because a lot of people are actually like a little bit irregular like one leg is going to be like slightly longer than the other or like you're going to have like a shift on like one side so like your one hip might like come up a little bit higher so like A lot of times, um, whenever I'm like measuring for a hem, like I'll be measuring two inches from the ground up, but then the pants, like each, like on one leg, I'll be taking like two inches off the original pants. And then on the other leg, I'll be taking off like two and a quarter inches. I mean, it just depends on like how precise you want the fit. Um... And do not try to attempt to measure, like, a a long skirt by, like, bending over and making a mark. <laughs> it's going to shift a lot when you bend over. And it's just... Yeah, you want to make sure you're, like, standing up nice, straight and tall. And, like, arms at your sides and, like, looking straight ahead. As a rule of thumb, like... Tailoring you can do at home is, like, shortening and hemmings, sometimes taking things in if you know what you're doing. Um, You can shorten a sleeveless top or a dress, just kind of, like, pinch it and, like, put a safety pin in there. Um, And, yeah, everything else you want to probably just see a tailor um, because there also are, like, certain design elements or, like, linings or just, like, certain types of seams that are specific to a garment and Mm -hmm. if you have a good tailor they're gonna have a really like trained eye to see those things immediately um Uh i would say like another good rule of thumb for like changing the size of something is that it's like not usually very easy to make something bigger but it's easy to make things smaller so like You're like Mm -hmm. at the thrift store and you're trying clothes on and you're in between like, you know, this like dress that's like a little bit snug and like a dress that's like a little bit big. Go for the one that's a little bit big. Um, And you can usually like go up to two sizes smaller with like getting something tailored but after two sizes and like amanda you'll know this from working in fashion um the proportions start to get all off so like like, Mm -hmm, an extra large to like a small like it's just usually like not going to look right it's true because it's not just like
0: the chest or the waist or the hip measurements. Like you also have to think about like, where's the mm-hmm. shoulder hitting, you know, like the armholes where are they? I, I have learned this lesson the hard way where I've taken in something a lot bigger. And then I'm like, what the heck is going
3: on with my arms? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like if you're getting like a, if you're getting a jacket, like always, always like go for the jacket that's, that fits the shoulders correctly. Cause it's like, really, it's like almost impossible to like make the shoulder smaller. Um,
0: That's really good advice. I agree. I have tried and failed. And really after a certain point then, unless you're an experienced sewer, you're really getting yourself into a challenging situation because essentially what you're going to end up doing is taking the whole thing apart and starting over. And like I said, I would rather sew from scratch from a pattern that take yeah. something apart
3: and have to make it fit me. Like it's so hard. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. One last thing about getting stuff tailored is you definitely, whenever you go to get stuff fitted at the tailor shop, you want to wear the undergarments you will wear with the garment that you're getting tailored. Mm -hmm, If you're getting a skirt, mm -hmm. a dress, or even a pair of pants hand, always bring the shoes that you will wear because like the shoes are gonna really change like how something falls, not just by height, but like even with pants, um you know, like, sh- shoes are all shaped differently. So, like, a pair of sneakers is going to make, like, a pair of pants fall a lot differently than, like, a pair of flats.
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say the same thing, too. I know this is really specific, but the bra you're wearing is going to change the way things yeah, fit. Yeah. Um, like, is it an underwear bra? Is it padded? Is it push-up? W- yeah. Like, if it's something for a specific event, you definitely want to think about the undergarments you're going to wear for that. Mm-hmm. But like, even if it's just a regular old shirt or dress, like what bra are you most likely to wear most of the time? Cause I swear it will change the shape of your boobs. <laughs> so like every bra gives you different boobs. Am I right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so what's the best way to determine, like I can, I can do this myself in terms of like a repair or a tailoring situation versus I need to take this in to see a professional. I mean, much like, you know, fixing your car or at weird stuff with your hair. We've all done stuff with our hair at home that we should not have done. Yeah.
3: It's like, it's so much like getting a car fix because like, you know, like a car, like there's a lot of stuff that you can just like learn on YouTube or like, you know some people change their oil themselves or like know how to change a tire and like that's like really cool and like yeah it just depends on like how much time energy and procurement of new tools you want to spend (laughs) on this if you like if you don't have a sewing machine at home you know it's like it's all just like an investment like do you want to like go out and buy a sewing machine and take time to mend and like if you do that's like awesome. And I totally encourage people to do that. But like, if that's not something you have like time and patience and money Mm -hmm. to do, then like, just take it to someone because it's going to be cheaper. They're going to know how to like, do it right off the bat. And yeah, it'll, it'll save you some stress for sure.
4: Yeah. I think that's like a huge part of our clientele. I feel like people like drop things off to us and then they'll be like, I mean, I could do it, but I just don't have the time or like my mom sews, but you know, it's COVID and she's limited. So I I do see people like wanting to learn or like knowing they should, but like Mm -hmm. who has time? Not me, not you apparently. So Mm
3: -hmm.
4: yeah, I (laughs) I know it's hard to learn something new. And I think a lot of people also, again, expect, like, the perfect results. And if that doesn't happen, they get discouraged. So um, yeah, but if you're open to maybe like something more visible, like if you know, it's gonna stand out, you should try it and see if it happens, because it's going to be visible regardless. And yeah, <laughs> Uh uh Um, yeah like a lot of the mending we do on socks and sweaters like it's just it's weaving and I wish like sometimes people would just try it it's really not as scary as you think Um, really the difficult mends are the ones that have like low visibility like the ones that really blend in perfectly you have to really know like you know, that's where, like, tension comes in when you're sewing and mm. just knowing, like, the proper fiber content. But if you're not worried about that, then you should just try and see what happens.
1: Yeah.
0: Why not? What do you have to right. lose?
4: Yeah. No. 2021.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as, as experts here, mm-hmm. what are the materials, tools, supplies yeah. that – you think just the average person should just keep on hand for these kinds of last minute repairs? Because, you know, I've read really staggering studies where a substantial portion of people are said like, oh, if my shirt loses a button or gets a hole, I just throw it out and buy a new one because I don't know how to fix it. And I, I think that maybe having the right stuff on hand makes it less of an emergency right away because you could fix it then. Yeah,
4: No, that's that's pretty wild. Um, please don't I know. I know. <laughs> but I think there are some like standard things to have when wanting to like get into mending. And, um, the first is like a nice pair of fabric scissors, nice and sharp, heavy shears. Um, they will really be your, you know, a helpful, uh, tool when learning how to mend. Um, they'll cut through fabric easier. Don't use your paper scissors that you use to like I don't know, cut envelopes with or whatever. You use paper scissors for <laughs> they, they. Um, <laughs> it's gonna damage the blade differently, and will like make cutting fabric a lot, um, just difficult. So sharp scissors, first and foremost, treat yourself. Um, Got to have a seam ripper or two or three because they go missing a lot and. I don't- They do. They do. (laughs) So get one with like a long handle. That's something I want to
3: invest into. An ergonomic handle and a seam ripper makes me (laughs) so happy. Yeah. And they exist. They are a little bit more spendy, but like, you know, if you're going to be doing a lot of seam ripping – on mm-hmm. a garment it really is worth it yeah
4: and that's okay you got to learn from your mistakes and the seam rippers is there to like help you through it
3: mm-hmm.
4: um you should have a you know a nice collection of thread colors I, I know that's like you know if you don't have you know people giving you thread all the time that could be <laughs> um just some little thread um And I would look into, like, whatever kind of project you're going to do, like, it requires certain thread. There's upholstery thread, cotton thread, polyester thread. I mean, we have, like, a basket of shiny satin thread that I don't really (laughs) want to ever touch, but it's there if we need it. Okay, wait. I've touched that thread,
3: and it, like, it can really come in handy for certain things. Like, For, like, rayons and stuff. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it is, like, a little bit shiny. Um, And I will say that, like, if you have something that's wool, um, like, you can't really get, like, wool sewing thread for a sewing machine, um, but actually getting silk thread is really helpful for doing wool because wool and silk are both protein fibers. And so they're going to have a similar shrinkage rate. Mm. Um, and it's also just going to kind of, like, blend a little bit better than, like, cotton does with wool. Because, like, cotton's slightly stiffer than, like, wool and silk.
4: Yeah. Um, you definitely want to have some fine – like, a fine point marker, like a fabric pen – or tailor stock, something to help mark um, where you'll need to be cutting or measuring. Maybe a ruler, or like Becca was saying earlier, a yardstick um, can be really helpful for measurements. You'll you'll probably need some pins. Really, all the pins. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they also so go pins. they also go missing all the time. Um, Sometimes they show up in the bottom of your foot when you least expect it. I, it's my nightmare. So I, I use binder clips when possible, like on chunkier projects like bags or, um, like upholstery. It's just an alternative thing to pins, So it won't leave a mark. Um, and there's just like a variety of needles out there. So looking again into what you're trying to fix, um, may require a certain needle and it really makes all the difference. And I was like, kind of slow to learn this like I was just using my universal needle on my machine for like a lot of things but it really makes the difference if you're working with like a delicate fabric use a thinner needle if you're working with something heavier and chunky um you know you want to use like a wider needle for that and some needles have a, like a ball point on it which are great for knits so
3: mm-hmm. um yeah, and yeah. same goes for, like, hand-sewing needles, too. Like, there are finer needles that are best for finer fabrics. And then there are, like, you know, your, like, embroidery needles that are better for, like, heavier weight fabrics. There's mm-hmm. needles with, like, sharper tips. There are darning needles, which are – huge and have, like, a big eye so that you can put, like, yarns through it um, and do your darning that way. Yeah, I feel like needle – finding the correct needle for mm-hmm. the project is like one of the most important things for sure yeah. um, and like in and like for like a sewing machine needle um like there are things that like I thought my sewing machine wasn't going to be able to go through but then once I like ramped up the needle to like you know there's like the size 90 for a sewing machine which like is, like, a denim needle, but then there's, like, 100s and 110s, um, and 110s, they're, like, not as common, um, especially if you're, like, just buying, like, a variety pack of sewing machine needles, but, like, yeah, like, 110s are, like, awesome for, like, going through, like, multiple layers of denim.
0: This is so interesting because I feel like I always just, like, randomly pick some (laughs) needles. And then they, like, it's miserable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all been mm-hmm. there.
3: Yeah, totally <laughs> so and that's when our, like, panicked trips to Joanne Fabrics come. First.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's always an emergency. Uh-huh. It's weird that more people aren't being frantic in there.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm still trying to find, like, the right name to describe places like Joanne and Michaels and whatnot because... They're kind of up to no good. They do all of the things that fast fashion yeah. does to like confuse I us. You know, like the coupons and whatnot. Yes. They sell a lot of stuff that is just like future garbage yeah. and not even good fabric. So mm-hmm. anyway. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about and you've touched on this a couple of times. Like in a lot of cases, when you do mend something, it is not going to look like it's brand new. And I think I mean, I don't, you have cool customers, so you probably haven't encountered this very often, but I have encountered this with other friends over the years who've had repairs done, not by you, but by other people. This disappointment when it comes back and it's not like good is new mm-hmm. and how it's sort of like, we need to sort of change our perspective on that mm-hmm. and see the beauty of like, a well-loved repaired item that that idea
3: of wabi-sabi wabi-sabi is this japanese term that refers to the beauty acquired through age um so like think about like hard a hardwood flooring or like an old leather bag that has just been like scratched up but has this beautiful patina to it Um, that's wabi-sabi like it's just something that's like aging and like being worn but it actually like becomes more beautiful Um, and that's a concept that's really much ingrained in Japanese culture. Um, I actually once had this art history professor who was teaching us about wabi-sabi and he said that his Japanese mother-in-law described wabi-sabi as something that westerners will never fully understand (laughs) um but like i think that there you know i think that we should be incorporating that more into our culture because like it is going to help like just to help us to keep things around longer and like not need new stuff all the time um and i think it really goes hand in hand with clothing and textile repair um there is a japanese mending technique called sashiko which um, you may, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. It definitely had like this resurgence in fashion recently and it was like really trendy. Um, But it's basically like these like straight visible stitches. Um, It's usually done with like denim, Um, but it creates this patchwork of cloth that's just stitched over and over and over again. And it's called Boro. Um, and it's a technique that's like very much a part of Japanese culture and working class history in Japan. Um, and I have taught it in like workshops and it's something that we offer as a mending technique to clients. Um, you can also find sashiko thread on like the internet and like a lot of like, kind of like more like boutique, um, fabric stores sell it. Um, but like, I have to say like. I think it's just like important to remember that like, this is a pretty um, just like historied Japanese technique and like Tia and I aren't Japanese. Um, And so we just like try to be like culturally sensitive about that. um, Cause like, I don't know if like a Japanese person would like look at like, Quote unquote Sashiko that we've done, and like be like, yeah, that's Sashiko. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, we do offer that technique with, like, you know, sometimes like patterned um, fabric or like stuff that's like not really like traditional. Um, So, like, I would definitely encourage people to support a Japanese Sashiko artist if they can, if they want that authentic experience. Um, And just like, if you can, like, learn from. Japanese Sashiko artist, if it's something that you're interested in learning. And there are classes you can take online Mm -hmm. or someday, maybe in
0: person. Um, there's an amazing shop in LA, uh, called East West shop. Have you ever heard of this place? Yeah. They do some really stunning Sashiko mending and they, they hold classes for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure they've been offering virtual ones and I've been wanting to do it for so long. It's just, like, no time. But uh, I have a friend who took a class, and she's she's, like, she wears a lot of denim. So it was a good investment for her because she's been able to repair a lot of her really beloved, like, shirts and pants. So mm-hmm. that's cool. And it's, like,
3: it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Like, it can be – when it's, like, done really well, it can mm-hmm. just be so stunning.
0: Well – Tell me some of the weirdest and wildest things you've had to mend.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I was, I've been thinking about this today because I know there's crazier things than what I'm about (laughs) to say, but like it it does happen. We get wild card items all the time. And I encourage people to keep doing that to us. Like we appreciate a challenge. And again, we'll try to fix anything um, but a broken heart. So. Um, but I, did, <laughs> I did recently just repair two like sock monkeys, like these two stuffed dolls that they came up. They came to us just, like, tore up, like, stuffing, falling out, these aw, Aww. little legs, like, hanging literally by threads. I don't even know how these, like, these child toys got so um tore up, but... Um, like, mangled,
3: really, is, like, the
2: word. Like,
4: I pretty much had to remake a sock monkey, like, <laughs> and, um yeah, I've never done that before. I had to, like, patch and stuff and I just like got it it's a little like detailed monkey face and I sewed it back together to make it pretty much look um brand new again um so there's that um another (laughs) another wild one that I I actually really enjoyed because I like basketry and it's something I want to like get more into and learn how to do but someone um brought us like a laundry hamper that's it's basically like a woven basket, like a grass woven basket and the handle areas started to weaken just because of like wear and use. So I um, pretty much just like fabric wrapped the fibers back together with like colorful poly thread and just like I knew it's how the basket was made in the first place. So like continuing that method felt really special and it's not every day that we get to do something like that. So it's a technique. Yeah. That's really cool. That is really cool. And it looks cool. Like I love, uh, re reworking basketry.
2: Yeah.
3: It's like really, I think like trying to figure out how something was originally made is like, Mm -hmm. yeah, just kind of how like we inform the type of mending that we do a lot of the time. Um, yeah, we've definitely gotten some weird stuff. Um, someone once mailed me their underwear to fix, which was really funny. Um, it was cool, <laughs> but yeah, it just like, it had a little tear in it. I was just like, all right, we're doing this. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, she was like, in her like 60s or 70s, and she was like, I've never mailed underwear before. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I can't say that I have either, but, like, yeah, I'm, like, so <laughs> I'm glad that you want to keep this out of the landfill. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, we, like... We just have a lot of people bring items to us that aren't necessarily made of fabric, but we just kind of figure out ways to fix them. Um, We don't turn very many items down unless it's something that needs a zipper. Um, But there was this one dress that one of our very sweet clients brought in. So it was this dress that she bought for $7 on Amazon, and it was like it's like really thin, like awful knit, like very flimsy fabric. Um, and it was this long sleeve t-shirt dress that was just like the sleeves were like about six inches too long. And then like the arms were like weirdly billowy, but then it was like really like, <laughs> clingy in certain spots on her. And then, like, the hemline I think was meant to be asymmetrical, but like, oh man, <laughs> it was really like a straight, like, asymmetrical hemline. It was just kind of like all over the place. And, you know, like, some of the fabric had like worn thin in the front and she was like can you like darn this and I was like I like I just don't know if we have thread that's even as thin as the thread that was used to knit wow us. and wow to, like, split the hairs of like just like the finest like polyester thread that we had like it was just Ugh. like insane and so I was like hemming and hawing and I was like really trying to just like help do this and like you know like it was seven dollars on Amazon and I'm not necessarily blaming her for purchasing it because like I think this was like a catfish situation where like oh I'm sure like, yeah. I'm sure that model looked great in this like you know in this dress and it was probably like a totally different dress than what was getting made and like the price was probably enticing but then when it came in the mail it just like probably wasn't the same dress that she thought that she had ordered and then mm-hmm. you know she wore it just a couple of times and it started like literally disintegrating before her eyes and yeah at one point I was just like I'm really sorry but like I don't think this is worth your time and money mm-hmm. and, like, that's rough I don't think this is really like, worth our time because yes. it's just gonna keep falling apart yeah um and like she was a good sport about it but like it was just so disheartening to see that um because it's just like like what's going to become of that dress you know I know guys there's so much of
0: that I don't know if you've ever just gone on to Amazon and like searched like blue dress or something random like that but oh God, you'll get like thousands <laughs> of results and they're all like yeah. so cheap and you know yeah. what frustrates me about this is places like whether or not really places, websites like BuzzFeed and Bustle and even sometimes Refinery29 are constantly doing these listicles with these like horrible Amazon clothes that'll be like, all the cutest stuff you can get on Amazon for under $20. And, you know, it like, normalizes mm-hmm. buying nine
3: dollar dresses from amazon you know what yeah, i mean I and then just like where's like the research and making these listicles like they're not uh, them, and then like trying them on and deciding like no definitely I'm, they are not yeah, <laughs> like they're, just, they're just googling and like making mm-hmm. these lists and i'm just like ah uh, i mean i know they like need you know the articles and stuff. And like these writers are just like doing their jobs, but I'm just like, where's like the journalistic integrity in that? I know. I know. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and it's like, they get, you know, a cut of all the sales of the things in the listicle. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how they Mm -hmm. make money. But I think it tricks people into buying crappy clothes from Amazon. And they like, don't know. I remember there was one that was going around. It kept like coming up in my Apple News feed last year, Mm -hmm. which was some like the $20 Amazon dress that you won't believe celebrities love or something. Mm -hmm. And I clicked into it and every – the dress and every single print was a knockoff of this brand spell. Like the exact copy of the print, but for $20. And yeah, like some weird brand that you can't even pronounce because it's just like an assortment of (laughs) – consonants you know right <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> oh so so weird um so i know i i hate i hate that that happens what a bummer yeah. tia and rebecca will be back on wednesday for the final part of our marathon conversation we'll be doing some more mending talk of course and we'll be Talking about their sewing machines, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can find them on Instagram as Old Flame Mending, and on the rest of the internet's at oldflamemending.com. I want to talk about Amazon clothing for just a few moments. You're probably wondering why. Well, how about I tell you this: In 2020, Amazon became the number one fashion retailer in the United States with 30 billion dollars in sales. In 2019. That's just clothing, not like all the stuff Amazon sold, just clothing. For years, retailers have been afraid of this happening. Like, I have sat in meetings where fear was expressed because there was a lot of fear that Amazon would steal the nicer brands, the like the national brands, that's what we would call them, that you would usually find in like a department store or a boutique. And then that would drive places like Nordstrom and Macy's out of business once and for all. Furthermore, there was fear that for the retailers that carry a wide variety of brands, including their own, but also these national brands, they would no longer have access to them anymore because Amazon would either buy these brands or enter into exclusive deals with them, which could still happen, right? But what really happened is that Amazon turned into a destination for super shoddy, super cheap, mega fast fashion. Lots and lots of knockoffs of like real brands, photos stolen from those brands, like from their websites and their lookbooks and literally on the Amazon product page. I see it a lot exact copies of prints like the spell dresses i was talking about earlier with tia and rebecca like there's a ton of that all over the amazon website like just look it's pretty wild to me it's like very unchecked all of this of course is shipped with free prime shipping and it's already like a super hot low price so it's very appealing to your average customer Why am I upset about this? Well, for one, as Tia and Rebecca mentioned, this clothing is definitely not built to last. I mean, let's think about it. When a dress is $20, well, that means it only costs a couple of bucks to make. In fact, there are three ways in which these clothing companies, these clothing brands, I don't know what to call them, sell their wares on Amazon. The first is the pretty classic way where Amazon buys it directly, you know, wholesale, From these brands and then resells it, just like any other brand you might see at a department store. And in that case, I can assure you, Amazon is demanding bargain basement costing. They need to maximize profits. Why? Well, remember, all that free prime shipping isn't actually free to Amazon. So they need to recoup that money somehow, right? That is by having a high profit margin on every unit they sell. They make that money back. Another way that brands sell their stuff on Amazon is on consignment, meaning they don't make any money unless a product sells. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because the brands will send their actual inventory to the Amazon warehouses, and they'll build the listings on the site. Amazon's not doing that. Amazon, however, will fulfill the orders. It's actually called Fulfilled by Amazon. And then Amazon takes a hefty fee for the sale, for the product listing on the site, and for receiving slash storing slash, you know, packing up that inventory to ship out. It's it's a pretty substantial chunk. I've helped some clients in the past build their FBA Fulfilled by Amazon stores, and it's it's expensive, let me tell you. So in order for the brands to make money, they have to make the product as cheap as possible in the first place the last way that a brand sells stuff on amazon is via drop shipping where the brand itself ships to you when you order a product through the site they're still required to buy and use specific amazon packaging so you as a customer will never notice this 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 packaging costs money and amazon still charges them a fee for selling the product it charges them a fee for having the product listing on the site, any advertising around it, etc. So here we are again. The product must be as cheap as possible to make it profitable for the brand, right? It's a classic story. It's fast fashion, right? So you're expecting this. So suddenly that $20 dress is starting to look like a really bad deal, right? Because for the product to be inexpensive enough to compete on the Amazon site, which means it has to be just like so such a low price for the customer in the first place cuz in most cases the amazon re- the amazon customer is looking for the lowest price and there's so much stuff on the site that to get that customer to buy from you and not the thousands of other people selling virtually identical stuff you have to have the lowest price so to have that lowest price out there and allow the seller to make a decent profit Well, that product's going to have to be super cheap to make. So the fabric will be low quality, the zipper will be shoddy, and the workers making it definitely aren't being paid a living wage. I just want to add here that should you order several dresses from Amazon and then return them, the odds of those ever being sold to another customer again are pretty slim. We've talked about this in the past. I want to say it was in January with just from Fab Scrap. Most likely, anything you return to Amazon is going to end up in a landfill. So it's just like one more reason not to impulse shop Amazon clothing, even though the deals are hot, right? Like on their surface, they are hot deals. I'm guessing if you listen to Clothes Horse already, you aren't buying a ton of clothes from Amazon. But I promise you, just as we talked about Boohoo in the last episode, you know people who are shopping Amazon. They can't help it because BuzzFeed and Bustle are just like normalizing the idea of buying $20 dresses from Amazon. If someone like BuzzFeed tells you it's a good idea, it says it's like one of the best things on the site that celebrities are wearing and raving about, well, you're going to buy it, right? So it's up to you, to all of us, to educate the people around us about what they're buying, like what's really happening with that $20 dress. But while we do that, we also have to give these same people in our lives some better options. Like, you can't just be like, that was stupid, that was wrong. No, 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 no. Instead, say... Hey, what if you got something on Poshmark or ThredUp? It would be just as inexpensive, but probably better quality. And it would be secondhand, which is better for the environment. And it might be a brand that you actually recognize, right? No shame, no guilt, just straightforward facts and a positive direction forward. This is how we change the world. By sharing our knowledge, by encouraging those around us, and keeping it positive. Not condemning. Not making people feel bad, making them feel powerful. Remember, it's progress, not perfection. Knowing the truth about the stuff we buy is step one, and it's a pretty major one. It's almost the hardest step, in my opinion. So let's do this. Let's tell everyone that is our mission. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. And don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at CloseHorse Podcast. Every Friday, I'll be doing an Instagram Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, where I update you on what's happening over at the blog, which is closehorse.world. Have you visited it yet? You should. We've got some good stuff over there. And I'll also answer your questions about this week's episodes or really anything else. Um We talk about all kinds of things. This week, we talked about returns, what really happens to them. We talked about how you can spot fast fashion. And I talked about how I became a debunker of fashion. (laughs) So you never know what's gonna come up. So be there or be square. We've been having a really good time. It it feels like we're actually hanging out together. Don't forget, like I said, go check out closehorse.world. Remember, it's the first blog by the community, for the community, featuring the community. So let's change together what good style and a good life means for the rest of the world. You can send your ideas to submissions at closehorse.world. You can also stroll on over to the website and click on the contribute in the top bar and see all the different options and forms we have set up to make it easy for you. Um, You can also email me at amanda at closehorse.world. I can't wait to see what all of you do. Also, if you want to meet other Clothes Horse listeners, join the Closehorsing Horsing Around Facebook group. And if you're not tired of hearing my voice yet, please check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We're in the midst of a never-ending series about the 2000s. Um, last week, we talked about all the different kinds of hipsters. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the magazines that were essential to the hipster way of life and the odds, so you won't want to miss it. I'll share a link in the show notes. And thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. <laughs>